Welcome to Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. I'm Chris Cooling. In the mid-1970s, interest in paranormal topics seemed to reach an all-time high. I remember books at the school library on Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster being very popular, and I checked out many of them. Pop culture was full of this. Shows such as In Search Of and films like Chariots of the Gods were popular. We had Night Gallery and Kolchak the Night Stalker on TV. The first TV movie of Kolchak being the highest rated TV movie to date. Even shows that didn't have a supernatural theme had these cultural memes filtered down. So you had Bigfoot appearing on The Six Million Dollar Man. There was Bigfoot and Wild Boy on Saturday morning. You also had a lot of the Bermuda Triangle in popular media kicked off by Charles Berlitz's 1974 book on the subject. The Bermuda Triangle, sometimes called the Devil's Triangle, is a region in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean to the northeast of Cuba, where a number of aircraft and ships are said to have disappeared under mysterious circumstances. The most popular boundaries of this area are straight lines between Bermuda, Miami, and San Juan, Puerto Rico. But these boundaries will vary depending on who is writing about it. The term was coined in 1964 and first used in the pulp fiction magazine Argosy. There were several TV movies. Milton Bradley had a Bermuda Triangle board game. It was referenced on Scooby-Doo, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Even Wonder Woman got in on this in the season two episode, The Bermuda Triangle Crisis, where it was revealed Wonder Woman's home of Paradise Island was located. Part of this trend was the NBC show The Fantastic Journey, which is the subject of this episode of Forgotten TV. Not to be confused with the great 1966 film Fantastic Voyage, this was the short-lived early 1977 series. I've intended to consider this show since I started this podcast, and the recent death of actor Jared Martin has bumped this to the top. The show was on in February and off the air by June and only lasted 10 episodes, but the basic premise we ended up seeing over the years in various forms. Whether it was Logan's Run from later that same year, 1985's Otherworld, or later shows such as Stargate, Sliders, or Lost. The Fantastic Journey was a mid-season replacement show for NBC in early 1977. From producer Bruce Lansbury, who brought us The Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible, and Wonder Woman, the theme music was composed by Robert Prince, who also composed music for the creepy 1972 CBS TV movie Gargoyles. The pilot episode featured a group of travelers that banded together on a mysterious island located in the Bermuda Triangle in some sort of temporal vortex where people from the past, present, future, and from other worlds are trapped. This island had zones of time where you could walk into different eras and meet people that had also found their way there, some living there long enough for societies to form, all while trying to find the rumored Evo land from where they can return home. In the premiere episode, Vortex, Professor Paul Jordan takes his 13-year-old son, Scott, Fred Walters, a young, impulsive athletic doctor, and others on a summertime, ocean-bound scientific expedition on a chartered boat 
where they travel into the Bermuda Triangle and become shipwrecked on an unknown island. The boat crew ends up dying, as do expedition members that set out in a dinghy in an attempt to get off the island, and we are left with main characters Paul, his son Scott, Fred, and others that travel to the interior of the island and encounter stranded voyager from the future, Varian. My name is Varian, and at Earth Year 2230, I was a musician, and my work was very important to me, because in my century, musicians do nearly all the healing. We use music to relieve pain, to restore harmony and balance to the mind, to the emotions. What's Earth like at 2230? In 2230, man on Earth has unlimited resources because he's tapped the greatest resource of all, which is his mind. Our machines are efficient and silent. And our cities are built miles high so that the land outside is free to grow food and sustain wildlife. The five races are melded into one. There's no more war. There are no more countries. It's just Earth. non-aggressive people. We waste nothing. Time, imagination, energy, effort. Because we believe that these things are the very essence of life. Professor Jordan and Varian discuss their situation. Earth, in the year 2230, We've been asking the wrong question. We've been wondering where we are instead of when. We're in some kind of time lock. A space-time continuum. Past, present, and future exist together. Each on its own terms. But the continuum is just a theory. Nevertheless, I believe that Dr. Jordan is correct. You see, as Earthmen, we're each locked in our own time. We've had to live by the calendar. But here on this island, you begin to understand that even as the first man walked upright from his Neanderthal cave, man was also taking his first step on the moon. And there's only a thin tissue of consciousness separating one event from the other. And that threshold we crossed? That's one of many. They're invisible. They are separating zones of time, like a giant honeycomb, if you will. <sighs> yes. Even the superior physics of my own time could not prepare me for it. Varian, played by actor Jared Martin, generally uses a kind of crystalline tuning fork device he calls the sonic energizer, through which he focuses his thoughts into what is described as a sonic manipulation of matter. The device is not evidently able to be used by anyone else and seems capable of a huge variety of tasks from opening doors to disrupting electrical systems to large-scale acts of destruction, as well as its apparently intended function as a diagnostic and healing device. Following the departure of Professor Jordan at the end of the pilot film, Varian takes over as the de facto leader of the Travelers and a father figure to Scott, played by 14-year-old Ike Eisenman. 
The pilot episode was filmed likely early in 1976, so you can tell Ike Eisenman had aged somewhat by the next episode. But NBC didn't decide until November to pick it up as a show for mid-season, so the series was rushed into production. NBC didn't like the pilot movie a whole lot and wanted a number of casting changes and a more exotic group of travelers, which we will see shortly. Scott's parents were written out, leaving Varian, Fred, and Scott. One of the reasons for editing also was to de-emphasize the potential of traveling to the past, according to story editor Dorothy Fontana. The network passed an edict that all future shows would involve only the future, not the past. The pilot episode was re-edited to 90 minutes, and new scenes were added to make it flow directly into episode 2. It aired on Thursday night at 7 p.m. Central against a special one-hour Welcome Back Cotter and The Waltons. I was not able to find any ratings information for The Fantastic Journey. I do know that it did not crack the top 30 or 40 shows of that year, but I did get the great teasers that would air before the opening credits of each episode. Fighting for your comfort. Who is this source that we keep hearing? He is not a man in the sense you mean. He is all energy. Take me back. Take me back. Some dude told you about an evil brain in a box, and they're going to wire Scott up to it, right? I wouldn't have put it quite that way, but yes. You are terminated. It's episode two, entitled Atlantium, with Gary Collins and Marianne Mobley. This episode adds Katie Saylor to the cast. It takes place immediately following the pilot episode, with many of the original party returning to their own time. Varian, Scott, and Fred find themselves caught up in the machinations of a megalomaniacal brain-in-the-box called The Source, which has enslaved the inhabitants of the city of Atlantium, built by the survivors of the original Atlantis, and intends to use Scott's life force to regenerate itself. The trio are aided by the dissident Atlantean Liana, who reveals that she is half-alien. Location shots for the city of Atlantium was actually filmed at the Weston Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. You can still see it on Google Street View and take a look at the appearance of that hotel, which is on the title card at the end of the episode. Liana, played by Katie Saylor, the daughter of an Atlantean father and an extraterrestrial mother, had enhanced strength, telepathy, and her own version of the Vulcan neck pinch. In this show, we're going to have more than a few references to Star Trek. Silel was Liana's pet companion and cat, uh, which she can communicate with telepathically, and sometimes scouts for Liana, acting as an extra set of eyes and ears. I wish I knew about my friends. I think they got lost in the swamp. You will learn that what I want is what I get around here. You will stay here with me. Or they shall die. I will die with them. Then you shall all die. It's episode three, Beyond the Mountain, and this episode adds Riley McDowell to the traveling crew. The group gets separated, which leaves Liana as the guest of Jonathan Willoway, who is the master of a community of androids, and the others are trapped in a dark swamp surrounded by green-skinned humanoids. However, Willoway's intentions are less than honorable, and he has no intention of letting Liana leave, while Fred's medical skills prove invaluable in discovering the truth. Now, behind the scenes, Roddy McDowell expressed interest in joining the show and was written in. 
Initially an antagonistic character, similar to Dr. Smith on Lost in Space, his character mellows and turns out to be an asset to the group. Ancient Greeks and future weapons. So you found our runaway, did you? And this little fish with him? This one was with elders. This is how the elders would tie us. And use these to punish us. You were in the temple for that. The punishment is death. I challenge you for the right of leadership. Why are you doing this? Are you going to talk or are you going to fight? It's episode four, Children of the Gods. The travelers arrive in a new time zone and meet a young boy who has escaped from a community run solely by children. They are led by bullying teenager Alpha. This episode has sort of a Lord of the Flies vibe and is very similar in theme to the episode of Star Trek entitled Miri. Bonk, bonk on the head. Five travelers were discovered within the boundary. Kill them or send them away. You said you didn't seek your own time like the others. I am seeking better. It's episode five, A Dream of Conquest. This episode adds a voiceover to the opening sequence, narrated by Mike Rode. Lost in the Devil's Triangle. Trapped in a dimension with beings from the future and from other worlds, a party of adventurers journeys through zones of time back to their own time. Marion, a man from the 23rd century, possessing awesome powers. From 1977, Fred, a young doctor just out of medical school. Scott Jordan, the 13-year-old son of a famous scientist. Diana, daughter of an Atlantean father and an extraterrestrial mother. And Jonathan Willoway, rebel scientist from the 1960s. Together, they face the frightening unknown on The Fantastic Journey. Guest starring legendary forgotten TV actor John Saxon as well as young Johnny Doran from Little House in the Prairie, Arc 2, Mulligan Stew, and the infamous 1981 TV movie, The Wave. In this episode, an alien dictator is planning to invade other time zones and conquer the entire island. Willoway pretends to agree with him so that he can learn his secrets, especially as the true leader of this alien community is slowly being poisoned by the would-be dictator, while Liana takes pity on an abused alien creature called a Nephring which reminds me very much of Snarf from Masters of the Universe. I'm getting married. What? Yeah, well, when do we meet the lucky lady? We kind of like to know who we're traveling with. We're not going to be traveling with you. We're going to live here. You will exchange vows and be one in our eyes. And you'll be my wife. For all time. It's episode six, an act of love. The group says goodbye to Varian, who's under the influence of a love drug, and marries a woman, Gwyneth, from a religious community in a geologically unstable time zone. But he soon discovers the community fanatically worships a volcano god called Vaticus, who demands human sacrifices after the wedding night. This reminded me a lot of the Apple episode of Star Trek, but at least Vol never asked for human sacrifice. 
Jonathan Willoway. What do you want? You. It's episode 7, Funhouse, with Mel Ferrer and Mary Fran. Arriving at a strange 20th century funfair, the travelers become part of a game played by an ancient Greek sorcerer named Apollonius, who also possesses Willoway. I think we can write this one up to an easy shooting location. What evil magic is this? The city is ours. An end to male domination, my sisters. To freedom! It's episode 8, Turnabout, the one with Joan Collins. The travelers encounter a city where the women are the slaves to men. The women mutiny and imprison all the men in a black void, which is sort of a phantom zone. And Liana appears to join their cause. And due to a serious illness, this is going to be the last episode with Katie Saylor. The way to Evelyn and the doorway back to your own time. Seek the house that lies below. Mom! It is you. It's me, Scott. I don't have any son. Help! Get me out! Help me! Oh, it hurts. My hands. Get it off. Oh, It's episode nine, Riddles. With Liana staying behind in the previous zone, a mounted messenger invites the group on a quest for an object that will assist their search for Evoland. And a strange couple conjures illusions drawn from their deepest fears. This episode reminds me of the original Star Trek episode, The Cage, as well as the season three Twilight Zone episode, The Trade-Ins. York murdered your son. When he brought Roland's body back here, he said there'd been an accident. He is a convicted murderer. This isn't over, mister. We all know what you did, and you're not gonna get away with it. This isn't over, mister! that gun away, doctor. You both know you're not going to shoot me while I'm holding the girl. My only problem is which one of them I'm going to kill first. It's episode 10, The Innocent Prey, with Cheryl Ladd, Nicholas Hammond, and a walk-on by Gerald McGraney. A prison craft from Earth's future lands in the time zone where the travelers are resting, releasing dangerous killers into a community that does not comprehend violence or crime. With a killer on the loose, Varian and the others must deal with him as well as protect the pacifists, and Carl reveals a personal part of his past. When Grizzly Adam saves Nakoma's life, it signals the beginning of a lifelong friendship, and the two blood brothers teach each other the secrets of survival in the wilderness. The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, Wednesday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain Time on NBC. A NASA space probe returns bearing the killer's spores, and they've got Mark Harris, the man from Atlantis. They're loose in the world, and they control Mark's friends, and that's the most dangerous battle. The Man from Atlantis, an all-new movie thriller, Tuesday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain Time, followed by the best of police story on NBC. A number of plot points were very similar to Star Trek, and it's no surprise. 
In addition to writing one of the episodes, Dorothy, or DC Fontana, was the story editor on this series. So undoubtedly, a lot of the ideas we ended up seeing on screen were filtered through her. We now know she either wrote or was involved in a dozen original series and animated series episodes of Star Trek. Also, a huge number of the sound effects on this entire show are totally recycled from Star Trek. One thing I noticed about this show was that it would reference events of earlier episodes. Now, extremely commonplace today, this is something you rarely saw in TV of this era. Very rarely did, for example, Captain Kirk ever reference anything that happened in another episode of Star Trek. I'm sure you can credit this to an experienced writer like DC Fontana maintaining continuity of the story elements. One of the great benefits of this type of show from a production standpoint is that since you have peoples and societies from different time periods, you can raid the studio prop warehouse for various types of props and set decorations. Thus, you might see random Greek statues in the background or sci-fi looking props that were used on other shows. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see any more of the fantastic journey. The network started to preempt the show week after week, and by the end of March, had canceled it, and the show just stopped production before the filming of an 11th episode. The script of this 11th episode supposedly still floats around online. Remaining episodes aired sporadically until June. Several of the production team went on to work on the very thematically similar Logan's Run immediately following the end of production. The show was never released to any form of video, nor was it ever rerun by NBC, or to my knowledge, syndicated or shown again at all in the U.S. But it did air in the U.K. on the now-defunct Bravo TV channel, and recordings from these airings can be seen on YouTube. There is a link in the show notes to the currently available episodes. Jared Martin, who began acting at 13 and had early appearances on The Partridge Family and Night Gallery, went on to appear on the following season's Logan's Run, Wonder Woman, Chips, The Incredible Hulk, Tales of the Gold Monkey, and Fantasy Island, and had memorable roles on How the West Was Won and Dallas, as well as the lead role in the 1988 series War of the Worlds. He recently died at age 75. Carl Franklin, who played Fred Walters, appeared on The Incredible Hulk, the Rockford Files had a series role on McLean's Law, as well as a recurring role on The A-Team. He is currently 68 and a TV director, having directed several episodes of House of Cards and Homeland, and currently works on the HBO series The Leftovers. Ike Eisenman returned to Witch Mountain the following year and was sort of a TV everyteen for about six years in after-school specials, Little House on the Prairie, Wonder Woman, Chips, Fantasy Island, Voyagers and was Scotty's nephew, Preston, on Star Trek II. He's currently 55 and still works in the entertainment industry behind the scenes in post-production. Katie Saylor retired from acting after her stand on the fantastic journey due to health reasons. But she recovered from her illness. Although numerous websites report a 1991 death, I found public records and newspaper articles to confirm she is still quietly living under her married name in Los Angeles. Roddy McDowell had a long and successful career in film and TV. He died in 1998 at age 70. He's probably most well-known for the Planet of the Apes films and TV series. He also played the Devil on Fantasy Island, as well as Bon Chance Louie on Tales of the Gold Monkey. In reality, the Bermuda Triangle does not exist outside the cultural meme or the paranormal narrative. 
The U.S. Coast Guard does not recognize such an area, and it appears on no official maps. It turns out Charles Burlitz's 1974 book that launched a pop culture phenomenon was largely a fictionalized narrative filled with errors, embellishments, and added details fabricated out of whole cloth. To be sure, our oceans likely still hold unknown mysteries to discover, but the Bermuda Triangle is not one of them. Outside of hurricanes and tropical storms, the Bermuda Triangle is no more mysterious, suspicious, or dangerous than any other stretch of open ocean. Still, it's a lot of fun to think about and makes for great fiction. Perhaps somewhere in the vast ocean there really is a race of Amazons or a lost civilization still waiting to be discovered. After all, 95% of the world's oceans are reportedly still unexplored. And to paraphrase a famous Vulcan, there are always possibilities. legendary for his portrayal of the first and arguably only live-action TV incarnation of Batman, has died at age 88. He reportedly died peacefully, surrounded by family, and is survived by his wife, Marcel, six children, five grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. A longtime actor with a career beginning in the 1950s, West guest-starred in a dozen TV westerns before getting his first series role as Detective Sergeant Steve Nelson on 1961's The Detectives. His second series role cemented him in pop culture forever in the 1966 Batman TV series. Never able to escape the Batman image, West was able to capitalize on his iconic role in numerous guest appearances and voiceovers, appearing as Elder Hercules on Shazam, again as Batman on at least six animated incarnations of the character, and eventually as a caricature of himself a number of times, including his long-running 17-year stint on Family Guy. I think this appearance on The Simpsons is one of my favorites. West. Hey, kids, Batman. Dad, that's not the real Batman. Of course I'm Batman. See, here's a picture of me with Robin. Who the hell's Robin? Oh, I guess you're only familiar with the new Batman movies. Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> the only true Catwoman is Julie Newmar, Lee Merriweather, or Eartha Kitt. And I didn't need molded plastic to improve my physique. Pure West. And how come Batman doesn't dance anymore? Remember the bat to see? Nice meeting you. Just keep moving. Don't make eye contact. Light the bat signal one last time for Adam West, dead at 88. Next time on Forgotten TV. Other worlds lie outside our seeing, beyond the beyond, at the edge of within. The Great Pyramid, erected by the Ancient Ones as a barricade at the portal between two dimensions, two separate realities. This is the story of one family drawn through a mysterious vortex into the other world and of their perilous trek 
homeward. It's 1985's Other World, next time on Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with NBC, Bruce Lansbury Productions, or Columbia Pictures Television. The Fantastic Journey, other mentioned series, and their associated characters are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making this episode possible. Mind Warp 105, Sean MC, I Hate CBS. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire Podcast Network. To find other great podcasts, click the link to Frequent Wire in the show notes. If you like 70s and 80s TV, and you do, listen to Walnut Grovecast, where we discuss episodes of Little House on the Prairie. Rate and review this show on iTunes or Stitcher, and subscribe to it already on any podcast app. Be sure and like the Forgotten TV Facebook page, and follow me on Twitter. All that is linked up for you at Forgotten.tv. I'm Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.